Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. As I mentioned to you last time when we started looking at the covenant, the covenant is silver lining. It is the, the, the notion, the principle that connects all the books of the Bible together. It is very important that we understand it, but not only understand it, but begin to realize that we must live it. Our life must be covenantal. We're not studying the book, the scripture, or the book of Revelation for, so that we may become better theologians. We're studying, we're studying so that we may come to know and love the Lord and understand Him as He wish us to understand Him. All too often we are tempted to reduce Jesus to a God that is convenient, comfortable, and the covenant shows us what God has intended to do with us. So last time we've looked at Adam, Noah, and Abraham. I don't have time to go over this. I have to move on. If you've not been with us last time, I recommend you get the CDs and at least get to see the touch points in God's dealing with Adam, Noah, and Abraham. And one thing I mentioned last time, I'm going to repeat it, repeat it often. Whenever you hit a difficulty in Scripture, whenever you get to a point where you go, well, why is God doing that? Or it doesn't make any sense to me. And you'll see some of that tonight. Beware of the knee-jerk reaction that we have to say, oh, well, there must be something wrong with God. Or there's something wrong with Moses or with whomever wrote the book. Right? Train your mind in charity to say, Oh, Lord, there's something wrong with me. I'm not getting it. Please send the Holy Spirit to open my mind to understand what you're telling me. And the important thing you have to hold on to, no matter what, just as when you're in the bus, you have those latches that you hold on to, is God is a loving Father. And so therefore, if in your lives you did not have the grace of a loving Father, there is a need for a healing in that area. For without that connection with a loving Father, you will have a hard time relating to God because He will sound and seem harsh and without pity, as you will see in some of those passages. So your lives is very, are very much connected to Scripture. And Scripture comes alive in in your heart. The two are together. And that's why we study Scripture, because through it, the grace of God can flood our hearts and heal and mend and correct our view and understanding who God is. What we're going to do tonight is start with Moses. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in Exodus. Not enough, not as much as we would like to, but again, we'll, uh, we'll plant a seed and we'll let the Lord deal with the rest. This is the fourth covenant. Before I do so, let's remind ourselves one more time what a covenant is. A covenant can be thought of as an agreement, even though the word agreement is a little bit, is actually weak. But be it as it may, an agreement between two parties, and it has five aspects that we want to keep in mind. The way it's presented usually. First, the parties are identified, they're introduced to each other. So, for instance, during a wedding, you'll notice the the groom will say, will tell, will, will, will speak to the bride and will say, I, so and so. 
he introduces himself, right? And likewise, the bride will introduce herself. And usually in a covenant, there is a historical prologue where the deeds establishing the worthiness of the dominant party. That's important. Not the worthiness of both parties, the dominant party. And we'll see that in the book of Exodus. So oftentimes in the book of Exodus and the Psalms also, there's a recalling of the deeds that God did to his people, not the deeds that his people did to God. Those typically are omitted. The focus is on the one who will ratify, the one who will guarantee the covenant. All right? Then, the conditions are set. These are the conditions of the covenant. This is what you must do. Following the conditions, rewards and punishments are presented. As I said last time, we're not going to deal with blessing and curses today. We'll leave that to the next session. We'll get to it. And then disposition of the documents where each party receives a copy. Each is given a copy. In the case of God, he does not need a copy, but we do. And we'll see today that the copy that he gave Moses, the first one, is called the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are the expression of, his, of the conditions of his covenant. They embody the covenant that God gave to his people. Okay? So keeping that in mind, let's turn now to Moses. Hopefully you brought your Bible with you and you can follow with me as we move through. Recall that Adam, the covenant with Adam applied to the family. Man and woman, he created them. And as a family, they image God. As John Paul II said, God is not, so ultimately God is not a solitude but a family of love. God in his innermost mystery is not a solitude, but a family of love. And so the first covenant is addressed to the family. Man and woman, he created them, and together they image God. That covenant was renewed, repeated with Noah. It was still familial. Okay? Then, with Abraham, the covenant addressed the whole tribe. All those who were with Abraham. How do we know that? Because God mandated as a condition that all men be circumcised. With Moses, we move now to, the covenant now extends to the twelve tribes of Israel. So you see the covenant growing concentrically from the family outward. With David, we will see that today, the covenant becomes that of the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel. And finally, with Jesus, the covenant becomes the kingdom of heaven. And it applies not to one people, but to all people. It becomes truly Catholic, universal. That's how the covenant expands from the family outward. And you know what? It hasn't changed. You strike the family, everything is affected. Remember that. That is why in a sense, in a real sense, in a deep and mysterious sense, Jesus lived for 30 years a hidden life in a family with Mary and Joseph. Okay? There's much to be said about that, but we don't have time. So let's move on. First, Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. Background. We know that Israel, Jacob, went with his sons down to Egypt. They lived in Goshen for 400 years. At the end of the 400 years, towards the end, they became enslaved. They lost their privileges and are now slaves to the Egyptians. Okay? Recall that God promised Abraham that he will give that piece of land to his descendants. It's now 400 years later. They've been in Egypt for 400 years. I want you to think a little bit about that. This, is not, this should not be a pure intellectual concept. It doesn't stay here. Oh, well, 400 years, we move on. 400 years. You are an Israelite. You're talking to your sons about and daughters about God's promise. And God promised our father Abraham to give us the land that is out there in Canaan. Let me put it in more concrete context. You live in California. You've been here for 400 years. 400 years. 
the age of this nation. Okay? And you say, and God promised us, promised our ancestor to give us, I don't know, let's say, um, France as our inheritance. Okay? Your grandfather is telling you that now. Okay? What, what do you think your response is going to be? It's been 400 years, right? Yeah, Dad, that's really awesome. Let's go check the stocks. Right? You really care about France? Really? Would you? You don't even speak the language. You've never been there. You have no idea who lives there. A bunch of crazy French people who drive like nuts. What would you want to go live there for? Goshen is a very lush and rich area of Egypt. Don't think it's desert and camels. Don't think, oh, it's just hot and humid and it's... Just, no, it is a very lush and pleasant area to live in. Sort of like San Diego. Okay? You're settled. You got your cars, your retirement, your 401k, your house, your house. Your house in San Diego. You're going to go where? Do, do you understand what it means, the, what the exodus means to these people? That's what it means. We think, oh, well, you know, Moses showed up and told them, God is coming to free you, and we're going to go in the desert. I mean, it was, I said France, who so had made it easy on you. Right? We're going to go in the desert. What are we going to go to there for? Oh, excuse me. Who are you, and why are we going there? Do you understand? Okay. Four, why did he wait 400 years? Why did God wait 400 years? You see, here's where we start. 400 years. I mean, come on, God. What took you so long? Right? We're blaming God. What took you so long? Well, why do you make us wait that long? And the answer God gave through his prophets later. Because, and that's why we have a hard time accepting the answer, of the hardness of your heart. I waited so long because you didn't call on my name. Because of the hardness of your heart. You were comfortable in Goshen with your cell phones and your pagers and your 401k and your stocks. and You didn't call on my name. Therefore, in my mercy, I had to force your hand. I had to make your life so unbearable that finally you'd call on my name. That's why. So it'd be like, you know, your son doesn't call until he broke his leg. And he's stuck and he has... No money, he has nowhere to go, and he's on the street. If it was your son who called in those conditions, would you not answer? You would, wouldn't you? You'd go and pick him up. Or would you be the one as a father, if, you, if your son didn't call you, and asked you how you're doing, and checked on you and came to visit you, would you be the one pursuing him all the time? No, you wouldn't. You'd be a fool to do that. You'd be doing him a disservice. Right? That's what he's doing. He's a father. He's teaching them that they are wayward sons, more concerned with their 401k and all the rest than they are with God. However, Exodus 2, 24, he heard their groaning and was mindful of what? He heard their groaning and was mindful of their suffering, the pain? No, no. His covenant was mindful of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God had put himself under an oath, as we've seen last time, when he said, I swear by my name that I will make that happen. And therefore, he is bound to make it happen. Despite the fact that they're attached to their material things. And so it is with us. On the cross, Christ said, I by my name, by my blood, will get you to heaven, provided you believe in me. Don't worry about the rest. And so, he's mindful of this and he calls Moses. Now when he calls Moses, Moses is tending the flock of his father-in-law. Moses has, has it pretty. Remember who Moses was. He was a prince of Egypt. And in his zealous, zealous righteousness, he went and killed an Egyptian. And then ran away. And he's been living there with the, you know, 
up in the mountain, quietly and happy, contentedly. Nothing to worry about. And God calls him to the burning bush. And he told him, when the Lord saw, verse 4 in chapter 3 of Exodus, when the Lord saw him coming over to look it more closely, God called, him out, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. He answered, Here I am. Come no nearer, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And you know that this place is the burning bush, the bush that is burning and yet did not, was not consumed. And if you apply now the anagogical sense to Our Lady, you will see that this is, can be seen as the Lord God in His full divinity residing in her and yet not destroying her humanity. Okay? Because the bush is made, is natural. It's, it grows out of the earth and it's, it, it is therefore material and natural. And that fire is supernatural. It is not, it is divine. And yet that divine fire did not burn the bush. The bush remained intact. Okay? So it is that when Jesus came on Mary, who was made out of Adam's flesh, without the sin, without original sin, he entered her and yet in his divinity did not destroy her. Even though, as he said to Moses, no one can see my face and live. And yet here he was in her, the flaming love of God, and she was not destroyed. In fact, she, was, she, she grew up in grace. So you can see how the anagogical sense applies to Mary. It also applies, of course, to the Eucharist. The same, the same thing. Whereby, when we look at the host, all we see is bread, but in fact, it is the burning love of God presented to us. The point I want to attract your attention to is that he tells him, do not come close... Come no nearer, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. St. John of the Cross, in his commentary on this passage, says that the removal of the sandals was an indication that Moses needed to grow in humility before presenting himself before the Lord. For only slaves walk without sandals. Okay? Now there's a couple of things that I just want to mention to you quickly in passing. First of all, the Lord is more substantially present in the tabernacle than he was in that burning bush. Therefore, the ground around the tabernacle is holy ground. You understand me? Therefore, when we come to, to the tabernacle to meditate, we, we, are, we ought not to come purely out of curiosity. It's imperfection. Curiosity is a form of vice. Right? However, even when we do that, the Lord will call our name. So we ought to wait till he calls our name. And when he does, our response ought to be, here I am. So when we come and spend an hour in, 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 in holy meditation, we're doing it not because we want some candies and we want to feel good. We're doing it to train ourselves and be ready so that when he calls our name, we can say, here I am. And then when he calls our name, he is the one to instruct us in holiness. He will say, remove your sandals, come no nearer. Okay? There is much that you can gain out of this meditation on this text, on how to properly pray and meditate before the Lord from this. Now, the Lord said, verse 7, so I know well what they are suffering. I have witnessed the affliction of my people. I know well what they, have, what they are suffering. I know well what they are suffering. Why am I insisting on this? For two reasons. Number one, all too often when we are suffering, we, because of our imperfection, think of God as being far from us. Whereas God is closest to us when we are suffering. And secondly, this is sort of God's way of saying, here in Moses, that's a credit on my part. Because when he says, I know well what they are suffering, He's also referring, by, by analogy, to the cross. It's not pure intellectual knowledge in God's part. He knows what suffering is. He will know what suffering is. All right? And then verse 18, he told Moses, You will go with the elders and tell the Pharaoh, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent us word... Permit us then to go a three days journey in the desert that we may offer sacrifice to the Lord our God. So what was plans, plan A for, 
for, for Egypt. Plan A was not to take the Hebrews out of Egypt. The Israelites out of Egypt. That was not plan A. Plan A was for Pharaoh to permit them to go out into the desert, three days journey, and offer sacrifice. Why was, was, was there to go three days journey out of Egypt? Because the sacrifice that they will offer, as Moses would say, is abominable to the Egyptians. Because as I have told you last time, they will have to sacrifice the, the animals which are the very gods that the Egyptians worship. Okay? And that is abominable to them, and therefore they, are to, they wanted to go out in the desert. So, notice, God tells Moses to go ask Pharaoh for his permission. Why? Because all those who are appointed in positions of power receive their mandate from God. And so St. Paul and St. Peter always tell us, told the Christians, right, to obey the authorities. In the Christian mind, in the Catholic mind, there is never a uh, sort of a... You, you can't be a revolutionary and be Catholic. Revolutionary in the sense of wanting to destroy political powers. Wanting to usurp power. You can't do that. Because powers, political powers, when they are, of course, um, uh, valid, are appointed by God. And when they are, are not, we ought to think about why is God doing that. All right? For all power, at the end of the day, flows and is given by Christ. Nothing that happens in this world doesn't happen without Christ, the Lord of history, being involved in one way or the other in it. That's the covenantal view on politics. Now, Exodus 6, 1, chapter 6, verse 1 through 9, there is a reminder of the covenant. Again, notice how God presents himself. Verse 2, God also said to Moses, I am the Lord, as God the Almighty, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but my name, Lord, I did not make known to them. I also established my covenant with them, to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they were living as aliens. And now that I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are treating as slaves, I am mindful of my covenant. You notice how God introduces himself and presents the historical background of what he has done and why he's justified in doing what he's doing. That is covenantal language. You understand? This is not just God going through some history because it's fun. You've got to keep focused on the covenant to understand everything else. The interesting thing is that God says, verse 7, I will take you as my own people and you shall have me as your God. What kind... This language reminds you of what? Who says that sort of stuff? A man and a woman in marriage. Okay? So coven the covenantal language oftentimes is marital. I am your God, you're my people. I am your husband, you're my wife. Alright? He says also, verse 8, And bring you into the land which I swore, God put himself under an oath, that I will give to Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob. I will give it to you as your own possession, I the Lord. But when Moses told this to the Israelites, they would not listen to him because of their dejection and hard slavery. Remember what I said earlier? Moses went and told them this. So why does the Bible point that out to us? Not to put down the Israelites. That's not the point. Not to say, oh, look at, look at these fools that would not listen. The Bible is very realistic. Even psychologically, it's very realistic. It knows that, humanly speaking, we cannot correspond to the covenant unless God helps us. So what is the point then? The point is to highlight God's fatherly love. That is, even when these people are unwilling and hard-hearted and they will not respond to His love, He will still make it happen. Why? Because He loves us. That's why. Now... Fast forward, they went through Egypt, the, you know, the plagues and all that good stuff, or bad stuff, depending on how you want to look at it, happened, and now they're out into the desert. Exodus 19, <clears throat> verse 4. Again, when they encamped, Moses went up to the mountain to, to God, and then God tells him, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob. Remember, Jacob, Israel is the same thing, Right? Tell the Israelites, you have seen for yourselves how I treated the Egyptians and how I bore you up on eagle wings and brought you here to myself. Right? Reminder of the why they should be 
putting their, their confidence in God. And that is why in our own lives, God will give us those signs. Because He knows our human weakness. He knows our need to be comforted and to be confirmed. So He gives us those signs, those small signs that we recognize in our lives. Okay? Just as He did back then, He does today. With every one of us. Therefore, if you hearken to my voice, if, and you keep my covenant, you shall be my special possession, dearer to me than all other people, though all the earth is, all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So what was God's intent for Israel? God's intent for Israel is for them to be a kingdom of priests. Why? Why did God intend for Israel to be a kingdom of priests? Anyone care to offer a suggestion? Why? That's it. What is, what is the duty of a priest? What is a priest doing? What does he do? He offers sacrifice. Offers sacrifice. Right? So what is Israel supposed to do? Israel is supposed to offer up sacrifice for what? For the rest of the world. Okay? And if you were to study even a little bit the theology of grace in the Catholic Church, you will see that the principal reason why we celebrate the Mass is that through Christ, the world may be converted. And the sacrifice of the altar has for purpose the salvation of all. Right? Salvation of all. And those of you who recite the chapter of Divine Mercy should know that by now, but what is, why, why, what is the answer? What do we say in that chaplet? Have mercy on us and the whole world. This is the Mass. You understand? Why did he pick Israel to do that now? Because, of course, God is Jewish. Why did he pick Israel? Why? Pardon? Yes. What about Abraham? Why did he pick Abraham? Right. Yes, but why? Why? Yes, but why? Why does Jesus come from all this lineage? But, but they believed in God because he made them believe in God. Why did he make them believe in God? Because of? What do you mean because of Adam? Okay. Yes, he made the covenant. But why Israel? Why not any other people? Huh? Because there were slaves. A bunch of other people who were slaves too. Only son, firstborn. Because Israel is my firstborn. Go tell Pharaoh to let Israel go because Israel is my firstborn. You go through the genealogy of the firstborn, of the righteous one. Israel is the firstborn. So therefore, okay, but why, why then do it with Israel who is the firstborn? What's about that? Because who is Israel supposed to represent? The firstborn of the Father. Christ. That's why. What is Israel then? Israel is a sacrament to the other nations. It points and represents the one who will come and bring salvation to the world. And so through it all, God is teaching Israel and the nations to recognize the one whom will open the gates of heaven for us. You understand why? You understand? Now, <clears throat> so Moses went and summoned the elders of the people when he said before them all the Lord had ordered him to tell them. The people all answered together. They all answered. So the covenant is presented. The dominant party is introduced. The, his credits are presented. Then it's the answer of the people. What do they answer? They answer what we all answer. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. What a tragic answer. What a tragic answer. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Let me ask this question. If you and I were to do everything the Lord has said, what would we be called? What would we be called? Bingo. Saints. What makes us saints? Can we make ourselves saints? What do we need to be, to be saints? The sacraments. Right? We need Christ. We need His grace flowing through us through the sacraments. Did they have the sacraments? No. 
Well, what's their chance of becoming saints? You might, you might as well win the lottery every day. You understand? You understand the tragedy of that answer? Why did they answer this way? Everything the Lord has said we will do. We will do. Why did they answer this way? What is the primary reason made them answer this way? Ignorance of self. They didn't know how wretched they were. They didn't know. They thought, yeah, we can do it. Go ahead, God. Tell us to do something, we'll do it. You understand? Ignorance of self. St. Augustine, Lord, help me know myself that I may know thee. Because the more wretched I see myself, the more through your grace I know your holiness. It's ignorance of self. They were too busy dealing with the stock market and the 401ks and the pagers and ordering pizzas and living the life to look at themselves and see, where do I stand before God? And then God says, I am coming to you in a dense cloud. Remember our conversation on the cloud back then with Paul? Here it is. Why does God come to them in a dense cloud? Because heaven is closed. Because we cannot see God face to face and live. God shrouds himself, hides himself from our view because we cannot see him. The reason why he put Adam and Eve out of the garden was precisely because they could not live there anymore. Their nature was not anymore able to deal with the beauty of the garden. So is our nature incapable of dealing with the beauty of God. So he wraps himself in the cloud for our sake. Okay? So that when the people hear me speaking with you, they may always have faith in you also. The Lord added, go to the people and have them sanctify themselves today and tomorrow. Make them wash their garments. Take care, and then he tells the people, take care not to go up to the mountain or even to touch its base. If anyone touches the mountain, he must be put to death. If you touch the mountain, you must be put to death. Whoa. God the assassin. I mean, what's up with God? Why is he suddenly so uptight about the mountain? Why? You see, we must understand holiness. We must understand the holiness of God so that we could truly appreciate his mercy. Okay? Notice, first of all, that he tells them, make them wash their garments so the sanctification of the people back then is purely outwardly. There is no sacraments that can wash them from within and take away original sin. Therefore, they're unfit to be presented to God. You understand? And so anyone who comes in the presence of God, when God is, comes in His holiness, the holiness of God cannot, cannot put up with, sinful, with, with sin. Therefore, sin is immediately destroyed. You understand? Yes, you got it. Yes, the Ark of the Covenant. That's exactly, this is called typology, and you're not paranoid. The fathers of the church did that all the time. That's the whole point. But there's even a stronger type that is behind me right now. That's why St. Paul says, whomever eats and drinks the bread, the body of the Lord, without discernment, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And that's why today we must pray for Catholics because if you see the proportion of Catholics going to communion every week versus those who go to confession, you have good reasons to pray for them. You must understand what it is that you're receiving and you must be in a state of grace. Otherwise, the communion with the Lord, turns against you and judges you. This is what this is pointing to. Holiness for Catholics is a duty. It's not optional. I'm not trying to get you paranoid, but I think that given the current laxity that we suffer from, a little bit of fear of the Lord will be the little bit of the beginning of wisdom that we all need. Do you understand? So, my advice to you is that if you have not had a chance to go to, commute, to confession, and if you suspect that you may have committed a mortal sin, you're not sure, but you suspect that you may have committed a mortal sin, 
Don't go to communion. You're obligated to come to Mass on Sunday. You're not obligated to receive every Sunday. You're obligated to receive once a year. You understand? Now, if anyone's suffering from scrupulosity, everything I said doesn't apply to you. You have other issues to deal with. But for the large part of Catholics these days, scrupulosity is not an issue. So, I do recommend very, very strongly that you pray every day, at least 15 minutes, examine yourself, do an examination of conscience, and go to confession frequently. And one word on confession, there's nothing you can tell a priest that will cause him to have a heart attack. They've heard it all. Yes. Scrupulosity is a, um, scrupulosity is a form of a mental illness, if you will, in which someone can fall, and those poor souls that fall into it will start to ask themselves whether they're committing a sin every three seconds. So, I'm eating food and I'm enjoying it. Is that a sin? I'm enjoying it too much. Am I sinning? And, and it's, it's a form of, uh, really, it's pride in disguise. But it's very, very hard to break because the habit can be so strong. Uh, generally speaking, maybe one in a thousand, you know, thousand Catholics would suffer from that today. Because most Catholics don't even examine their conscience. Right? So, I, by and large, if you're not really mindful of what you're doing, you're not going to suffer from it. It requires you to be aware of what you're doing. And question it, and be always concerned about it. So one way to fight against scrupulosity, by the way, rely a lot on your guardian angel. Always rely on your guardian angel. And ascribe everything to your guardian angel. Everything good you receive, say, thank you, my guardian angel. He will help you with that. Okay. Verse 18. Mount Sinai was all wrapped in smoke, for the Lord came down upon it, upon it in fire. The smoke rose from it as though from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. The, trump, the trumpet blast grew louder and louder, while Moses was speaking and God answering him with thunder. When the Lord came down to the top of Mount Sinai, he summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up to him. So, what you see here is that when God came down on the mountain, I'm sorry, I, didn't, I forgot to read that, on verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were peals of thunder, lightning, and a heavy cloud over the mountain, and a very loud trump, trumpet blast. Okay. Peals of thunder and lightning. If you look in the book of Revelation, in chapter 4, verse 5, 8, verse 5, 11, verse 19, 16, verse 18, and 19, verse 6. So, 4, four verse 5, 8, verse 5, 11, 19, 16, 18, 19, and 6, you will see that same expression repeated. Right? Peals of thunder, Lightning repeated in all these chapters. I want to point out to you one in particular, which is in chapter 11, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant could be seen in the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a violent hailstorm. All right? My point to you right now, without going through this imagery, is the covenantal nature of the book of Revelation. Okay? The covenant is seeped through it. The same principle we see right now, the same imagery, when Moses stands before the mountain with the people, is seen also in the book of Revelation. So without the covenant, the, the, our understanding of the book is lost. Now, Exodus 23, 29 through 33, there's one point I want to make to you. God is telling Moses, I'm going to send you out in this country, and I'm going to, you're going to conquer it little by little. I will set your boundaries from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to the river. All who dwell in this land I will hand over to you to be driven out of your way. You shall not make a covenant with them or their gods. Okay? They must not abide in your land lest they make you sin against me by ensnaring you into worshipping their gods. Okay? You shall not make a covenant with them. What does that mean in particular? It means that as, as an Israelite, you are not to marry those people that God has driven out. Because that's a covenant. Why is God doing that? Because, he explains it, very, he explains it right there, they must not abide in your land lest they make you sin against me. Because he knows how weak Israel is. And he knows how, how attached Israel is to the 401ks and the stock markets and the cell phones and everything else. 
And so he's telling them, I need to quarantine you. I need to get you to live in a, in a hospital, so to speak. Because right now, if I were to let you loose, as I've done in Egypt, you'll be just like them. Instead of you converting them to my love, they will convert you to the love of the world and to worship Satan. That's, in a nutshell, the book of Kings, the prophets, right? summarizing how Israel continuously suffers from that temptation. Now, you might think that uh, the, 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 the provision here is too harsh, but listen to what Jesus says in Mark, verse chapter 9, beginning verse 45. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life crippled than with two feet to be thrown in, into Gehenna. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into Gehenna. That is covenantal language. That language that Jesus Christ is pronouncing makes no sense outside of the covenant. Because what is sin? How is sin defined? It is defined against the covenant. You understand? It isn't what I think sin is. Again, Exodus 24, the people in one voice responded to the commandment of God, we will do everything that the Lord has told us. Now, Moses then wrote down all the words of the Lord. Remember when I said each get a copy? Here's the copy. And rising early the next day, he erected at the foot of the mountain an altar and twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. Then having set certain young men of the Israelites to offer holocausts and sacrifice young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord, then Moses took half of the blood and put it in, the large, in, in large bowls. The other half he splashed on the altar. Taking the book of the covenant, he read it aloud to the people who answered, All that the Lord has said, we will, need, we will heed and do. Then he took the blood and sprinkled it on the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant. Remind you of another someone who said, This is the blood of the new covenant? Here it is. This is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words of his. So why does he sprinkle blood? Because what is sealing the covenant is the sacrifice. Covenants are always sealed by sacrifice. Always. So the bull is killed, the blood of the bull is sprinkled on the altar as a sign that God agrees to the, to the, to the covenant, and then sprinkled on the people as a sign that they agree to the covenant. Okay? That's how the covenant is sealed between the two. The two parties have not sealed the covenant. When I say covenant is always sealed by sacrifice, I mean, in particular, today, marriage and the priesthood. Or religious life. When you come before the altar to be married, how do you seal the covenant? By the sacrifice of yourself, as St. Paul taught us. You understand? Likewise for a priest, likewise for a nun or a, a, a brother. Sacrifice is the way with which we seal a covenant. And much of our problems today is because we do not understand the covenant anymore, nor do we understand the role that sacrifice plays in our lives, we rebel. And so God establishes a perpetual covenant with them in Exodus 31. And he says, between me and the Israelites, it is to be an everlasting token. What is the token? It is the Sabbath. They must keep the Sabbath. That's the sign of the covenant. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh he rested. All right? So we see how the initial creation of the universe ended on the seventh day because the seventh day is the day of the covenant. All right? Now, they said, everything the Lord told us we will do. Moses goes up to the mountain to talk to God. And then when he's up on the mountain... Remember, up to this point, they have received the, 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 the commandments, and no, they're gonna, he's going to receive the commandments, but up to this point, they're saying everything God will say we will do, and so far, God has been in their midst. Okay? Now, Moses goes up to the mountain, and God starts telling him about the ark. And you're going to build the ark of the covenant, you're going to pull a tent, and I'll come down, and Moses is thinking, but God, why do you need an ark, and why are you talking to me about a tent when you live in our midst? It makes no sense. He doesn't say that to God, but he's certainly thinking it because it makes no sense. It's paradoxical that right in the middle of all of this, suddenly God is giving Moses instructions on how to build the ark. Why is he building the ark when he's living right in the midst of his people? Because God, because God foresees what is going to happen. He knows what his people are going to do and he already puts in the medicine they will need 
in order to deal with their sins. You understand? And so it is often with our lives, certain events in our lives seem to be out of order. Why is God doing this with me right now? My son, I'm doing this with you right now because you're going to need it later. And you don't see it right now. But you will see later. Oftentimes, this happens to us. As I told you, oftentimes scripture reveals us, the face of God, and shows us also our face, how much we believe. And the more we study it, the more we understand the ways of God with us, the more we grow in faith, in his love. Oftentimes, things happen that make no sense right now, but they will do. They will make perfect sense one day. And so, he's up the mountain, dealing with God, and what do they do down there? They're waiting for him. Forty days, right? He's taking too long. So, when they were, he was taking too long, they gathered on Aaron and said to Aaron is the high priest, and said to him, Come, make us a God who will be our leader. As for the man Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, who brought us out of the land of Egypt. They're acknowledging that, that he brought us out of the land of Egypt. Why? Because they want to give him credit? No. He's the guy who took them out of San Diego and La Jolla into the desert. You get it? Because remember, when the plagues hit Egypt, Egypt was destroyed, but Goshen was untouched. Nothing happened to Goshen. So they're thinking, our homes in La Jolla are still intact. What on earth are we doing out there in the desert? Okay? So here's Moses up there, talking to God, whomever that is. Let's make our own God. And they ask the high priest. And so... Aaron replied, have your wives and sons and daughters take off the golden earrings they are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron who accepted their offering and fashioning this gold with a graving tool made a molten calf. Then they cried out, this is your God of Israel who brought you out of the land of Egypt. On seeing this, Aaron built an altar before the calf and proclaimed, tomorrow is a feast of the Lord. Early the next day, the people offered holocausts and brought peace offerings. Then they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. So who are they really adoring? Why did they make a calf? They made a calf because it is the god Apis, the Egyptian god of fertility. So what are they really after? Well, nothing is new under the sun. Money, sex, and power. Except that in that case, they, all, they at least had the decency to recognize that they had to ask the authority of a demon, before they get into it. Whereas in our case, we don't even bother. Now you might think that, you know, those Israelites, if we were in their shoes, we would not do such a thing. Well, the Council of Vatican II ended in 62. They resolved many questions except that of contraception. And they said, we'll leave it up to the Holy Father for him to decide. So the Holy Father commissioned about 2,000 people to study this and come up with an answer whether contraception should be permitted or not. What did the Catholics say? We don't know that man, the Pope. He's taking too long. And sh surely the commission will recommend it because this is a wise thing to do. What did they start doing? Adoring their own golden calf. And here we are. My point to you is God loves us despite our failings. He will correct them. Do not listen to those who are crying wolf in the church, that the church is coming to an end. The church will not come to an end. Because she has the love of Christ, her, her, uh, her groom. I always have issues in English with the two words, bride and groom. Because with groom, I feel like saying the groom and the, and the grime. And with bride, the bride and the brood, and it just doesn't ever work. So I have to be careful when I'm thinking about those two words. It's very painful. <clears throat> so, on seeing this, so they did all that wonderful stuff, and then God, verse 9, said, I see how stiff necked this people is. Let me alone, that my wrath may blaze up against them to consume them, then I will make of you a great nation. He offers to Moses to start from him, not from Abraham. What does Moses answer? He says, 
Verse 13, remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and how you swore to them by your own self, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and all this land that I promised, I would give your descendants as their perpetual heritage. So the Lord relented in the punishment he had threatened to inflict on the people. So Moses speaks covenantally to the Lord and says, you bound yourself by oath that you'll make it happen. You can't do that. Why, do, why does the scripture say, so the Lord relented? Was it really that God got really, really mad at them and needed Moses to calm him down? No. This is anthropological language. It's, it's, it's God's ways is couched in ours for us to understand it. What is really intended here is to show us how much through this Moses is coming to know the Lord and to love him more and more and how the intercession of one man saves a nation. In our own days, I think we've seen it with John Paul II. Never under, underestimate the power of your own prayer for your family first and foremost. How the intercession of one man can have wondrous effects on so many people. So, what is the intent here? In the, in the covenant with Moses, there are really two parts. The first one are the Ten Commandments that he gave them. But they could not as we know, live up to the Ten Commandments, because to live up to the commandments, we need the grace of God. St. Augustine puts it very well. The law was given that grace we may seek, and grace was given that the law we may keep. That's how it works. The law here is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were given so that we recognize, hey God, we can't live up to those Ten Commandments. We can't really fulfill them. And if you do an examination of conscience, you will see how often we break them. And it's so easy for us to break them, even in venial sins. But then grace was given so that we can actually live those commandments and attain to eternal life. They could not live it, so God gave them provisional law. A second one, an inferior one. In fact, he didn't give it to them directly. Moses gave it to them. And so it, was, it, came, it became the law of Moses. And the law of Moses comes in two books. The Deuteronomy for the lady and um, Leviticus for the Levite, the priesthood. And it, it basically prescribes a set of rules to contain Israel, to protect Israel from further falling into sin. It does not solve the problem. Just as today, if you, if you want, the homeland security is trying to prevent terrorist attacks. It cannot solve the problem. It takes something greater than that. It takes the grace of God. Okay? So likewise, that, these are the two books of the law of Moses that was given to contain Israel. And it basically says, don't go near those who will tempt you. Because if you do, you will fall into sin. And it was prescribed in cleanliness versus uncleanliness. So if you're a leper, you're unclean. Why? Because physical uncleanliness is supposed to teach them about moral uncleanliness. You understand? What did they do at the time of Jesus? They hardened their heart so much that they said, no, we don't need anything more. All we need to do is live according to the law of Moses and we're holy. So if I see a leper and I touch the leper, I become unclean. Therefore, to be holy, I can't touch the leper. And so comes Jesus. And what does Jesus do, especially in the Gospel of Matthew? He sees a leper. He doesn't just pronounce the word, be healed. He actually touches him. Why? he wants to show the power of the new covenant. Whereas in the old covenant, the unclean causes the clean to become unclean, and the new, the one who is holy, can heal. Okay? Now, let's see what happens with David, very briefly. I'll try to be as brief as I can. With David, David is settled in his palace, he's conquered the, whole, the promised land, he's got Jerusalem, and now he's sitting there, and he's comfortable. And he begins to perceive that God is intent on doing something greater than that. So he tells Nathan the prophet, you know what, I'm living in a house of cedar, and God is in a tent. The, 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 the ark is still in a tent. I'm going to build a house for God. So Nathan says, go, go ahead and do it. God is with you. But during the night, God speaks to the prophet Nathan and says, no, that's not what I want you, David to do. And he delivers a message to him. And that's in the second book of Samuel, chapter 7, verse 1 through 6. When King David was settled, so I, I told you this, and then some, verse 5, God speaks to Nathan and, sa Nathan and says, go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, should you build me a house to dwell in? 
I have not dwelled in a house from the day on which I led the Israelites out of Egypt to the present, but I have been going about in a tent under cloth. In all my wanderings everywhere among the Israelites did I ever utter a word to anyone of the judges whom I charged to tend my people Israel to ask, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, speak thus to my servant David. The Lord of hosts has this to say, It was I who took you from the pasture and from the care of the flock to be commander of my people Israel. I will, and I will, and he says, I have been with you wherever you went, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you, and I will make you famous like the great ones of the earth. I will fix a place for my people Israel. And then he says, the Lord also, verse 11, reveals to you that he will establish a house for you. Now, house in Hebrew is, has the same connotation that it has in Arabic, bait. It's actually, bait is of Hebrew background, all right? House means three things. It means a building, but it means the family, the royal house of, you know, the king of England, right? And also, it is said that a man doesn't have a house until he has a son. Because when he has a son, his house is established. And you know how it is among Lebanese and Middle Easterns in general, where if I have a son, I am not called by my first name anymore. I am called the father of my son. Okay? So, all that is built into this word, build, ben, bena. It's the same word in Arabic as in Hebrew, bena, to build, but it's the same root as for son, ibn. So, this play on word here, in which God is telling David, I'm going to do three things for you, David. You think I'm done giving you my graces? I haven't even started. First, I'm going to establish your house forever. So, now, my covenant is with you. Your house will remain forever. So the kingdom of David will remain forever. That's the promise he made. Two, I will build you a house, meaning I will give you a son, I will establish a throne, and then he will build me a house. Alright? And then, <clears throat> David has one of the most beautiful prayer that you, saw, you find here in that chapter. I really recommend you read it. It's again in Samuel book, the, the second book of Samuel chapter 7. It's the proper answer to the graces God gives us. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Alright. Now, a couple of things that I'd like to... So, so the point I'm trying to, I suppose I'm making here for your attention, bring to your attention, is that if you read the Gospel of Matthew, you will see that Jesus is absolutely insistent. I have come to restore the house of Israel. I have come to restore the kingdom of David. You understand? He's bound by that covenant. And now let me ask you this question. What is the Catholic Church called? What are we? The, the first letter of St. Peter. Go back and read the first letter of St. Peter. We are the Israel of God. That's who we are. We are the kingdom of David. That's who we are. You understand? God fulfilled his covenant. God fulfilled his promise. A couple more notes that I think are important. In Genesis chapter 49, 8 through 11, Jacob is blessing his sons and he comes to Judah. And he says, You, Judah, shall your brothers praise, your hand on the neck of your enemies, the son of your father shall bow down to you. Judah, like a lion's whelp, you have grown up on prey, my son. He crushes like a lion, recumbent. The king of beasts, who would dare rouse him? The scepter shall never depart from Judah, or the mace from between his legs, while tribute is brought to him, and he receives the people's homage. And basically, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So who is David? He is of lineage of Judah. You understand? And so now, that promise, that prophecy that Jacob uttered about Judah is realized in David. And, therefore, the, the, the Christ is to be of the lineage of David. Because his kingdom is assured forever. How do we know that? Psalm 110. It's a very important psalm. Psalm 110, especially 2-4. to four. The Lord says to you, my Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. What he's saying is, uh, Yahweh says to Adonai. This is a psalm that David wrote 
when Solomon was enthroned king. Back then, you didn't wait to die to make your son a king. You made him a king while you were alive, because number one, you really want to enjoy the show. Right? You're proud. Your son is on the throne. You're so happy this is his accomplishment. And number two, you want to make sure that his kingdom is assured. And so, David is telling Solomon, listen, kiddo, Yahweh, my God, is telling you, is saying to you, my Lord, you're my Lord, my King. Right? Take your throne at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool. The center of your sovereign might, the Lord, will extend from Zion. The Lord says, rule over your enemies. The Lord has sworn and will not waver like Melchizedek, you are a priest forever. Okay, so it is supposed to be, again, a priestly kingdom. And that role, the role of a king offering sacrifice, Solomon fulfilled provisionally when he dedicated the temple. It was one of the rarest occasions where a king could offer sacrifice. But he was really speaking of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now if you understand that, you see there are a couple of things that are going to happen later which are really, which are going to test the faith of Israel. When in 587, Nebuchadnezzar came down and destroyed Jerusalem and took the king over, the reigning king, something very important happened. That's in the second book of Kings, first, chapter 24. Essentially, Jehoiakim, uh, Jehoiakim, the king, the reigning king, is taken to exile by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. And guess what happens? When he's taken into exile, no one knows whether he has a son and what is the continuation of his lineage. Do you understand? His lineage is interrupted in public life. What does that mean? What does that mean if the lineage of the king descended from David may not have a son? How can God's covenant be fulfilled? You understand? So all the way through, when they came back from exile and rebuilt the temple and they're offering sacrifice, they're asking themselves this simple question. How is God going to fulfill the covenant when we don't know what is the kingly lineage? You understand? And now, perhaps, you may understand why it was so critical for Matthew to start his gospel the way he did. How does he start his gospel? The genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. If you are a Christian of Jewish background, you read this, you are going to hit the ceiling. This is huge. At last, the genealogy is revealed. God kept his promise. And you see here, verse 10 and following, now you understand the import of this and why we read it every time. Because it's covenantal. Hezekiah became the father of Manasseh, the worst king of Israel. Manasseh sacrificed children to, to Moloch. Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the Babylonian exile. Here we are. The rest, up to this point, you can find that in the book of Kings. The rest is not there. Matthew picks it up. Now notice, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, the Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok became the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eliazar, Eliazar became the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph. Who's Joseph? No, no, but who's Joseph? What is this lineage that I just read to you? I know, I know, I know. But it is the lineage of whom? The kings of Israel. Who's Joseph? You got it. He is the true king of Israel. Authority is Joseph's. Herod, who was reigning back then, was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. All right? He was not a Jew. He was not the real king of Israel. It was in hiding. That's why for Christians of early century, reading this meant the world. And it was very important that Christ be linked all the way back to David to the royal lineage. Because the covenant meant that 
in Psalm 110, the throne of David is assured. There will always be a king of the lineage of David on that throne. You understand? You understand how the covenant links the whole thing? Without it, all these passages, when we read, I'm sure you've heard this gospel before, and I'm sure you wondered, why on earth are we reading all these names? That's why. God fulfilled his promise. You see how the covenant links us all the way from Noah, from Adam to Christ? That's what makes the whole scripture flow. It's the covenant. And I need you to keep that in mind as we move forward. What I want to do next time is go back and study the blessing and the curses associated with the covenant because nowhere are they manifested as in the book of Revelation. I know I taxed your time tonight, but if I don't do that, I won't be able to keep the pace and we'll be five years into it. So, my, what I would like you to do for next week, go back, pick up some of those passages and meditate on them. And ask the Holy Spirit to open your hearts so that your lives become covenantal. Because you won't have peace in your heart until you live the covenant. God has graces for all of us through the covenant that he established with the sacraments. And he is waiting for us to come home. So on that Thanksgiving day tomorrow, come home in your heart in prayer and begin to, if you've not yet, begin to really take the covenant seriously so that God may bless you abundantly. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.